Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Good morning, church. I'm going to throw a picture up on the screen. Two guys who might look familiar. So back in Detroit in the 1930s, three young men hopped on a bus and tried to pick a fight with a man who was sitting on the back of the bus. They insulted him. He didn't respond. They increased the heat on their insults. And the man still stayed calm. He, he didn't respond at all. Eventually, the man stood up. When he stood up, the three young men look at him and realize, wow, they're a lot bigger than they had imagined. So he reached into his pocket, pulled out a business card, handed the business card to these three young men. And the young men uh, gathered around this business card after the man got off the bus. And all the business card said was, Joe Lewis, boxer. <laughs> See, they tried to pick a fight with the man who would go on to be the heavyweight boxing world champ, a man of tremendous power, of incredible skill, entirely capable of defending himself against those three young hooligans. Yet he chose to forego his status and his power and, and hold it for the benefit of those three young men. See, that's a demonstration of humility. Now compare this with the other man on the screen, Muhammad Ali. See, in his heyday as a heavyweight champion, there's a story uh, that's told that he's taken his seat on a 747, getting ready to travel somewhere, and uh, the plane's going down the runway, taxiing, and all of a sudden, the flight attendant looks over and realizes he's not wearing his seatbelt. So she said to him, uh, Mr. Ali, can you please fasten your seatbelt, sir? He looked up, and he proudly snapped back and said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And without hesitation, she stared at him and said, Superman don't need no plane either, sir. <laughs> See, that's a demonstration of pride. One was quiet, humble, and modest. The other was loud, boisterous, and proud. And humility versus pride. You know, we'd all like to believe that we're more like Joe Lewis uh, than Muhammad Ali. But the fact of the matter is that no one not any one of us is exempt from the corruption of pride. It might even be argued that if you believe you're not proud, you're proving the point that you are, in fact, proud. In his book, Mere Christianity, I love what C.S. Lewis uh, said about pride. He said this. He said, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. 
There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. And he says, the vice I am talking of is pride and the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. The essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride, the essential vice, the utmost evil. See, in its most basic understanding, pride can simply be defined as idolatry of self. That's what pride is, idolatry of self. It's displacing of God by the self at the center of your lives. In the middle letter of pride, P-R-I-D-E, is I. So is the middle letter of sin. It's all about me. It's all about myself. It's all about what I want. My preferences, my needs, my opinions. And society has even repackaged pride and turned it into a virtue, right? The world uh, tells us it's good to be self-centered. It's good to to have self-love. It's good to find and seek self-satisfaction. It's good to gain a following through self-promotion. It's good to have a life of self-fulfillment. See, but this kind of worldview with self at the center always has its end in despair. It always leads to destruction. Much how King Nebuchadnezzar's pride led him down a path of despair and utter humiliation. But even in his season of humiliation that we'll see today, God worked out for the king's uh, good all that he experienced. And what we're going to learn today then, as we dive into our next uh, chapter in our study of Daniel, is what many scholars um, would call uh, Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story uh, in Daniel chapter 4. What we learn today is this fundamental truth, that the most high God humbles the proud so they would know he prevails. The most high God humbles the proud so they would know he prevails. So we're looking at Daniel chapter 4. Now this uh, chapter here is the final story that we have of King Nebuchadnezzar. And it's also one of the most unique stories, chapters in all of scripture, because it's the only chapter in the Bible written by a pagan, written by a pagan king. It's essentially Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He wrote this probably with the help of Daniel. And so it's his own written record of of how God deformed him and then transformed him. And his testimony comes in the form of a letter. And letters in the ancient day, you would, instead of signing at the end like we do today, you sign it at the beginning. So verse 1, Daniel chapter 4, verse 1, says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. So we know off the bat that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote this, and his audience is everyone in the entire world. And then he tells us right away why he's writing this letter. Verse 2, he says, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So clearly something has happened to Nebuchadnezzar where he's now praising God as the the Most High God. Um, something big happened, and he's going to then now tell us about it. So that's his introduction. Now, starting verse 4, he brings us back in the past where he tells us the story uh, that happened to him that we're going to read about. Daniel 4, verse 4, he says, this is what happened. I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. So this is probably toward uh, the end of Nebuchadnezzar's career. He's uh, been very successful. He was at the height of his power. He expanded Babylon to uh, so much of the known world, and he plundered the very best treasures from all across the land. He was at peace with his enemies because they were terrified of him. He just finished building a new palace. Everything is good for him. He was content. content. He was uh, ridiculously prosperous, and he loved it. He was living the good life. The problem, though, said he was proud. As Max Lucado once said, he said, pride is the poison pill of the soul. See, Nebuchadnezzar took pride in his achievements. He took pride in his military prowess. He took pride in, in his magnificent buildings that he ordered uh, be built. In fact, uh, to this day, uh, thousands of Babylonian bricks have been um, discovered by archaeologists uh, that uh, were part of some of the, the building projects around Babylon during the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So they have thousands of bricks that are essentially stamped. Every single brick was stamped with the inscription that says, I am Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who provided for this building. So he wanted to make sure that he received full credit for all of the building projects. He wanted to make sure that history wouldn't soon forget him. But as I said before, God humbles the proud so they would know that he prevails. So we're going to pull out from this passage uh, what I'll call four poisonous principles of pride. And then we're going to also see one merciful promise of God. So here's the first principle. Pride regards achievement as the product of self. Pride regards achievement as the product of self. Everything that you've achieved was all you're doing. See, as Nebuchadnezzar sat on his throne, and as he looked out and surveyed everything he had achieved, everything uh, he had accumulated, everything he had built, he believed that he himself was the instrument behind all of it. What he failed to grasp was what Daniel was telling him all along, right? That there's a God in heaven who reigns supreme, and he reigns above everyone and everything, and he's the one responsible for putting the king in such a place. So think for a moment about your own achievements your own education, your own successes, your own possessions, your own bank accounts, uh, your own career advancements, your own talents. So when you think of those things, you immediately feel puffed up. That's what pride is, it's feeling puffed up. Do you feel the urge to tell others about what you did? Do you feel the urge to plaster it all over social media? Uh, Do you want to tell others how hard you worked for it? Do you want to tell everybody how you've received so many compliments? Or does your heart want to scream, thank you, God, for all of these good gifts? See, that's the first response of a humble person. This is what James says in James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights. So that means every good thing you have, every good thing you've achieved, every talent of yours, every success of yours, every possession, every blessing, it's all a gift of grace from the Heavenly Father. All of it. So instead of us having the attitude of, look at me, look at everything I've done, look at how good I am, look at how different I am of others, look at what I've achieved, me, 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 I, I, I. Let's instead be humble servants who reflect the humility of King Jesus and are eager to point to him as the source of every good thing that we have. 
So Nebuchadnezzar failed to see his little small self in light of the grand majesty of God. So God breaks in and shakes up his spiritual apathy and pride. Verse 5, Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So in an instant, Nebuchadnezzar changes from his state of contentment now to one of of terror. And just as he had a season of crisis 30 to 40 years ago in Daniel chapter 2, when he received a, a scary dream, and now he has another moment of crisis brought about by another dream. So he calls for his advisors to interpret the dream. None of them are able. And then Daniel finally arrives on the scene. Verse 8 says, at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So the humble Daniel comes before the proud King Nebuchadnezzar to offer some help to him. Now, what's interesting here is this high level of confidence and trust that Nebuchadnezzar has in Daniel, right? He knows that Daniel was filled with the spirit of God. He says uh, the the spirit of the gods. Um, Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't have his theology, right? He's still a polytheist. He's on his way toward monotheism. Um, But he also recognizes that Daniel doesn't get shaken up by any secrets or any mysteries because time and again, Daniel demonstrated that his trust was in the sovereign God who rules, the God of heaven, the revealer of mysteries. Verse 10, he says, the visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. So Nebuchadnezzar uh, describes, begins describing his dream to Daniel. Now there's nothing troubling about his dream yet. We're not sure yet why he was so terrified of it. He sees this beautiful cosmic tree that reaches into the heavens and it's visible throughout the whole earth. Now it's a tree that provides nourishment and life for, for uh, the other animals. Now if Nebuchadnezzar is thinking he's the tree, this is a pretty good start. This is good so far. Verse 13 He says, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So now Nebuchadnezzar gets to the scary part of his dream. An angel appears and orders that this huge cosmic tree be cut down. Now, if by this point the king was assuming that he was the tree, we can understand now why he's terrified. All that's left of the tree now is a stump. Verse 15, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Now, so as this angel is giving instructions for this tree 
to be cut down. Notice how the image changes, right? It's no longer a tree that would be cut down, but now he's talking about a person that would be brought down. Verse 16, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. So at this point, it's now clear to the king that this big, beautiful tree is actually a a powerful person who will be cut down, someone who will be brought low. Nothing um, but a poor reflection of his former self. So the heavenly creature who pronounces this word of doom to King Nebuchadnezzar now goes on to explain why this is all happening. Verse 17, he says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. The decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So the angel tells Nebuchadnezzar that uh, his dream is a divine revelation intended to teach Nebuchadnezzar and all the people that God is sovereign over the affairs of nations, over the affairs of rulers, and over the affairs of every single human. Nebuchadnezzar Uh, At this point, had given lip service to God in the past, right? When Daniel interpreted his first dream or when uh, he saw God miraculously save um, Azariah, Mishael, and Hananiah. And many today give lip service to God. But lip service is always born out of a heart that lives independently from God. It comes from a heart that's proud, a heart that idolizes self, So a prideful heart regards achievement as the product of self. And here's the second principle that we see. Pride refuses to acknowledge the authority of God. Pride refuses to acknowledge the authority of God. To quote C.S. Lewis again, in Mere Christianity, he says this. He says, it is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. He says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. See, pride refuses to acknowledge the rule of God and the supremacy of Christ over one's own life. The proud person has no room for God. The proud person doesn't want to submit to God. Instead, they want to take God's place. They want to rule over themselves and they want to rule over their own little kingdoms that they've created. Here's how Psalm 10, 4 puts it. It says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him, God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. See, so when we're believing the lie, the illusion that we're competent to live our own lives, entirely separated from God, we're idolizing self. And we're failing to see God for who he truly is. He's the most high God who rules the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he wants. So the king then relays the whole dream to Daniel and asks him to interpret the dream. So how does Daniel respond? Verse 19. Then Daniel whose name was Belteshazzar was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. 
The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. See, Daniel knows the meaning of the dream. He knows it's terrible news for the king, and he realizes it may also be terrible news for himself because the king has been known to fly off the handle. He's been known to have a temper. He's been known to shoot the messenger. Nevertheless, after a bit of delay, Daniel does provide the interpretation. Verse 22, he says to the king, It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. So Daniel butters him up a little bit by giving him the good news first, and he's hoping to soften the blow of the bad news that he's about to tell him in 24. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. It's a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. So we see that Nebuchadnezzar is this great tree. right? It symbolizes his greatness, but also like the great tree that gets chopped down, um, that's what's going to happen to him with only a stump remaining. He'll live like an animal in the outdoor fields until a specified period of time passes. And all of this is meant to humble the king and to teach him a valuable lesson. Over and over we see in this passage that the most high God rules. He rules over human kingdoms. He rules over kings themselves. He rules over every single person. But there's a promise here that when the king finally does come to his spiritual senses, he's going to get the kingdom back. In verse 27, Daniel pleads with the king and says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. See, I love how Daniel here calls for repentance. Uh, He's calling for the repentance of the most powerful king on earth. And it's amazing. He speaks the truth to power. He's not uh, fearful here. He's brave. He's courageous. And he tells Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He says, stop being prideful, king. Repent. Renounce your sins by doing what's right. And stop mercilessly oppressing all the poor and all the helpless. Maybe then God will spare you. Unfortunately, though, Daniel's advice falls on deaf ears. Verse 28 says, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. So the proud king rejects the wise advice of Daniel, which leads us to our third principle. Our third principle is this. Pride rejects the advice of godly people. Pride rejects the advice of godly people. See, the implication here first is that the people of God will will have the courage to speak the truth to power in love, um, see, this Babylon, a Babylonian head of state uh, needed a man of faith to speak the truth to him, to hold him accountable. I love how one commentator put it. 
He said this, he said, we must be willing to share the bad news with people that are out of sorts with God, even as our hearts break for them while saying it. We must be willing to tell others that God is not pleased with this pride, the human tendency to push him aside and think that we're the measure of all things. We must be willing to say why God works against us so we might one day know that he rules and not us. Finally, we must be ready to call for repentance and offer hope. Daniel didn't shirk from speaking God's word into the life of the most powerful man in the world. In doing so, he's provided us with an example of the backbone needed to be faithful when our opportunity comes. See, even when confronted with this truth, though, the king still rejects it. Pride rejects godly wisdom and godly advice. It doesn't listen to advice because it doesn't recognize the need for advice. Pride essentially makes the statement that my ideas, my thoughts, my opinions, my desires are superior to everybody else's. I know it's best for me, you don't, and God doesn't. And how many times have we known what God would want us to do in a certain situation or uh, what other people advised us of in a particular circumstance, but instead we did what we wanted to do. We said what we wanted to say. We went where we wanted to go. We bought what we wanted to buy. Proverbs twelve fifteen puts it this way. It says, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. See, the prideful person is a fool because pride rejects advice and makes everything about itself. Right? And, now, and we, we know some people like this. We know uh, people who turn every conversation, every topic, and in- instantly makes it about themselves. I love uh, what Paul David Tripp says in his book, Dangerous Calling. He puts it like this. He says, proud people tend to talk about themselves a lot. Proud people tend to like their opinions more than the opinions of others. Proud people think their stories are more interesting and engaging than others. Proud people think they know and understand more than others. Proud people think they've earned the right to be heard. Proud people think they have glory to offer. Proud people, because they're basically proud of what they know and of what they've done, talk a lot about both. Proud people don't reference weakness. Proud people don't talk about failure. Proud people don't confess sin. So proud people are better at putting the spotlight on themselves than at shining the light of their stories and opinions on God's glorious and utterly undeserved grace. See, when we're so focused on self, when we're so focused on what we know, who we know, what we've done, um, everything about us, we end up drowning out the wisdom of the godly voices all around us. So let's be a bit more mindful of how many times, even in conversations, we say, I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 mine, mine, mine. Let's be quick to listen and slow to speak, taking seriously the advice of those that God has placed around us. So Nebuchadnezzar refused Daniel's godly advice. Even so, God was really patient with him. God gave him, uh, the king, another 12 months to repent, but... His time finally came. Verse 29. At the end of the 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Proud much? See, from the flat roof of the palace, the king looks down on this magnificent city 
Uh, He surveys the city streets. We know the city streets were paved with limestone and they were uh, decorated all around with lion figures. He could see the famous hanging gardens, one of the ancient uh, wonders. And he he built those for his wife. And then he observes uh, some of the 53 temples that he had built in Babylon. He brags and boasts about who he is, what he's done, all that he's accomplished. So now God's humbling hammer of judgment is going to fall on him. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. So just as God warned Just as Daniel predicted, the proud king falls from his pinnacle of greatness. He loses his mind, and he's reduced to an animal, basically. See, it seems that God gave the king a case of boanthropy. That's an actual uh, psychological disorder. Um, Psychologists use that term to refer to a person who believes um, he or she is an ox or a cow. And see, the king, who thought he was superhuman turns out to be subhuman. Now, he no longer lives with people. He no longer eats food with people. He no longer sleeps amongst people. Instead, he lives with the animals. He eats grass like the animals, and he sleeps alongside the animals and even begins to look like an animal, all because of his pride. Pride regards achievement as the product of self. Pride refuses to acknowledge the authority of God. It rejects godly advice, and here is our fourth principle. Pride results in abject humiliation, complete and total humiliation. Now, the mighty has fallen here with King Nebuchadnezzar. I love the warning of Proverbs 16, 18. It says this, Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Sinclair Ferguson sums up well what happened to the king. He says, the one who refuses to honor God's glory loses his own glory. He becomes outwardly what his heart has been spiritually and inwardly. Bestial. Some of you might know the name Howard Hendricks. Howard Hendricks was a popular author and seminary professor. And over his years at the seminary, he obviously had the opportunity to teach a lot of young men, men who were training to become pastors, men who, were, who wanted to enter the ministry. And he'd kept uh, this little black book with him everywhere he traveled, everywhere he went, he kept this little black book with him. And in that little black book, he would write the names of men he taught in seminary classes who had fallen out of ministry through affairs or through some other uh, grievous sins. And his list grew to well over 100 names. 
one day as Hendrix was looking through the many names, he was trying to determine a, a common theme, uh, that something that's true of all of these guys. What's the common thread between them? And finally, he realized which with each man had in common. When he had them in his class and as he knew them in the years after seminary, he determined that they all shared the same trait, a haughty spirit, pride, and arrogance. See, the end result of pride is abject humiliation. As Charles Spurgeon has said, every person has a choice between being humble or being humbled. So we can humble ourselves before God or we can wait for God to humble us because the reality is God will humble every single one of us. If not in this life, then in eternity for sure. So maybe you've experienced a similar kind of humiliation. Maybe you're speeding down the highway of pride and you're about to crash in humiliation. If so, there's really good news. The good news is that you have a patient, gracious, and merciful Heavenly Father who tells you that it's not too late to turn around. It's not too late. No matter how far you may have fallen, his mercy is deeper still. And praise God that Nebuchadnezzar finally realized this. After seven years of shame and humiliation, here's what we read, verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored him who lives forever. See, just as he suddenly lost his mind, now he regains it. He looked up. That was the first thing he did. He looked up. He finally stopped looking down in pride at his achievements, and he instead lifted his eyes to heaven. Not only did he, he look up, but he woke up. He humbly acknowledged the sovereignty of God. So his sanity was restored. His reason returned to him. Not only did he look up, wake up, but we also see that he spoke up. He praised and honored God for who he truly is. He is the most high and eternal God who rules over everything in the universe, including Nebuchadnezzar's own life and our lives. Verse 37 he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. What an incredible testimony of Nebuchadnezzar's experience with God. And I think Nebuchadnezzar would tell us today that it was all worth it. All his humiliation, all those years were all worth it because God worked through that to restore the king and to bring him to repentance. So here's the, the merciful promise of God that we see in this passage. And it's simply this. God restores the proud when they approach him in humility. God restores the proud when they approach him in humility. Regardless of how much we may have uh, pointed to ourselves as the source of all the good things in our lives, of the source of all of our achievements, regardless of how much we may have refused to acknowledge the authority of God over our lives, regardless of how many times we've shut up the voices of godly people around us, regardless of how many times we've crashed or how far we may have fallen in humiliation, God desires nothing more than to restore you. The only requirement is to turn to him in humility. 
James 4.10 puts it this way. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Lift your eyes toward heaven and ask God to save you because you can't save yourself by your own power, by your own intellect, by your own wisdom, by your own rituals. Look up to him, even if it's from a pit of misery that your sin has created. Look up to him and his grace will claim you. Don't think you have to climb some spiritual heights before God is going to look favorably upon you or restore you. He asks only that you forsake your pride and that you... Trust him in humble dependence. Because really, if a murderous, idolatrous, arrogant, materialistic, low life like Nebuchadnezzar was granted the kingdom, you'd better believe there's hope for the lowliest of us. The most high God humbles the proud so they would know he prevails. See, after all, if there's anyone who knows something about humility, it's the Son of God our Lord Jesus Christ. See, he stands in total contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. Right? Nebuchadnezzar was a, a sinful, merciless man who glorified himself and aspired to sovereignty because he exalted himself, though he was humbled by God. Jesus, on the other hand, he's the sinless, merciful, eternal God who humbled himself and aspired to servanthood. Because he humbled himself, he was exalted by the Father. It was because of Jesus' humility that we're saved. His humility in in stepping down from heaven, his humility in, in taking the form of a man, his humility in trusting the Father, his humility in climbing Calvary's hill to die the death that belonged to you and to me. And because he rose to life three days later, we're saved by humble trust in him, and we live our Christian lives in humble dependence on him. So this is a fitting time then to observe the Lord's Supper and to be reminded of Jesus' sacrifice for us. So we read about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you, Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you, Jesus, that your humility was our salvation. Lord, that kind of love, that kind of humility is something the world just knows nothing about. It's something that blows our minds. But Jesus, we're so grateful. We're so grateful that we have a king who went low to serve us, to save us. And we're so grateful that we have a king who climbed to the heights of heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, orchestrating all things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Lord, thank you 
for your body being broken for us and for your blood being spilled for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take the bread. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Thank you, Jesus. Would you stand and worship the King of kings and Lord of lords with us?